All right, folks, welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vincent Emanuele, and we are joined by a good friend, author, scholar, gentleman, longtime activist, and veteran, Kim Sipes. <laughs> That's quite an introduction. <laughs> well, it's good to see you, man. We have you in studio today. We have been in a bubble, so it's nice to have you in the flesh, man. Thank you. Good to be here. Today, we are discussing or having really an in-depth discussion about Kim's latest book, Building Global Labor Solidarity, Lessons from the Philippines, South Africa, Northwestern Europe, and the United States, published by Lexington Books just recently. Um, where can folks find a copy, Kim? Well, right now they probably shouldn't. It's, <laughs> they publish it in hardback. Their, their audience is uh, libraries, and they sell it for an outrageous $120. Now, when we get uh, when we get about 150 books sold, then it's going to come out in paperback at a much cheaper rate. So I would hold off, but we can discuss these things right now. And certainly, if you you know if you have a library that's interested, push it on them. Especially at the universities and stuff like that, they should be they should be ordering it now. This it's good. It's worth the money. But I can't ask individuals to buy it at that price. Well, I agree that it's worth the money. That's why we're having this in-depth discussion. And there's so much in the book that I think we should just probably get started right away. Um, So let's start with a bit of personal background. How did you become interested in issues surrounding labor? And when did you start thinking about these issues a little more in-depth? Well, I have a different background than a lot of people on the left. Uh, I come from a working-class family. My mom was married and divorced three times. Um, my second, my stepfather, um, her second husband, was somebody who was terribly influential with me, uh, for me in my life. He was a truck driver. He was a prison guard. In fact, we even lived on Alcatraz for a little while, as you know. Um, and so, you know, I always was taught that, you know, working people needed to be treated with respect. I know that's a foreign idea these days, but that's what I was brought up with. So I've always, I've always worked. Uh, I've worked a range of jobs. I've worked white collar, blue collar, pink collar, uh, and I've always treated people with with uh, respect. So part of the thing is that when I was in the Marine Corps and got politicized there, fighting racism, I came out of the Marine Corps very. Uh, enraged at what we'd been told because I finally I read uh, the Pentagon Papers and uh, what I found out was not only had the government lied to us about Vietnam but everything was a conscious lie from A to Z so I came out I turned over as the phrase is is, is used even though I went to college uh, I'd gotten a couple of years uh, at nighttime and then I went went on full-time to finish my bachelor's degree at Florida State, but I was getting more and more radicalized in this process and learning more and more. And as I got, as I got introduced to leftist reading, certainly I read Marx and a lot of stuff he read, but I, I didn't think that was it. I wanted to learn more about working people. And so over time, this just develops, you know, getting to know working, you know, more working people, thinking about their situations more, thinking that, you know, they're not saints, they're ordinary people. Some are good, some aren't worth a piece of shit, you know, and everything in between. And so I wanted to have a more realistic look at this. So I started understanding this. So probably I would say, oh, in the late uh, 70s, I went, I became a printer. I worked in a print shop for nine years. And so thinking about this, I got active in my union. 
Um, and then in 1986, I went to, I, well, first in 83, I went to Europe and met this, uh, among other many other things, I met this Filipina, told me about this labor. Oh, we're going to get, we're going to get there. So I don't want to, I want to want you to, <laughs> don't tell us that yet. Don't tell okay. us that story yet. Okay. When you were, when you were, uh, print, when you were print, when you were working in print shops, were right. you, this was in San Francisco as well? Uh, it was mainly the Bay Area. Okay. Uh, but in 81, 82, I left the Bay Area and went down south just on my own. Uh, I wanted, ultimately, I wanted to get a job with the union because printing was shifting to the south and the unions weren't following that. And I wanted to go work for the union, but rather than going to them and telling them I could organize, I went, I decided I would go and try to get a job on the shop floor and organize from within. So I was in Tennessee, I was in Murfreesboro for a little bit, and then I went to Shepherdsville, Kentucky, and worked there. And then the Reagan uh, recession hit in late 82, and there was no way anybody was going to take a risk for a job. Uh, and I went back to the Bay Area. Right. I, that's, a tough, that's a tough organizing gig. Sergio and I have been through Murfreesboro, Tennessee, when we were coming back from uh, Bonnaroo Music Festival. <laughs> but we were coming down from an acid trip, so that was a little different than, <laughs> than your experiences there. Though I'm not sure what was going on in the 80s. In any case, let me let me ask you this. What what did you hope, sort of a broad question before we get into some of the specifics, what did you hope this new collection of writings would achieve? Did you have any specific goals or hopes uh, in publishing this? Yeah. Uh, one of the things is, uh, as I'm getting a little older, I'm 69 now, uh, I'm realizing sort of my activist career is is closer to the end than it is to the beginning. Let's put it that way. Um, and I've got a lot of knowledge and experience. Um, a lot of it that a lot of people just don't know about. I mean, whether it's me personally or the particular struggles I've, in, I've been engaged in or around. And so I wanted to sit down and write up about them. Actually, I had written about them before, but I wanted to bring this together in one spot where people could get an idea of what's going on around the world. Most people don't know um, about labor. Hell, they don't know about it in the U.S., and they know even less about overseas. I've been, I've been building global labor solidarity liter literally since 1983. Had some pretty interesting experiences that nobody has had. I wanted to write it down leave some sort of a record for whenever, you know, I go to the big meeting in the sky. <laughs> no, well, you could, you could see that throughout the work. There's so much, there's so much to get into. Five of the key lessons that you mentioned on page seven in the book, and then we'll get into part one, is a different conception of what is meant by trade unionism, some new organizational forms for workers, uh, alliances, an emphasis on member, not just steward level education, new relationships with sectoral organizations across the social order, and an emphasis on the importance of uniting with workers and labor organizations around the world. So in part one, part of what you're arguing is that much that has been developed in the way we think about trade union organizing, mobilization, formation, and so on, uh, during the 1980s and 90s was quite ripe, that there was a lot of really interesting, robust things happening in that time frame that people don't know about. Well, that's true, but this was not in the United States. Right. This was overseas, right. particularly in the Philippines. So in, in part one, you sort of take us down a little autobiographical account of those years. So including uh, an interview you conducted with the longshoremen, mm -hmm. uh, a trip you took to Northwest Europe, which opened the door for you to travel to the Philippines, 
uh, and your involvement with the British-based journal International Labor Reports. Um, first, however, let's let's get some definitions out of the way. Okay. Um, so as the interview progresses, um, but let's start very simple because I think this will help folks. What is shop floor internationalism? Okay. Basically, shop floor internationalism is efforts to try to get ordinary workers to care about workers in other countries so that they work together, not that one's superior and one's inferior, but that they work together in solidarity to support each other, to encourage the other to provide resources when one has more than the others, but to also be there and back people up if they get jammed up. So the, uh, it's a mutual, respectful, even thing, not going through the union hierarchies, but an actual worker-to-worker right. connections. How did this play out in San Francisco with the longshoremen in 1984? Okay, well, that was a real interesting case. Uh, the ILWU, International Longshore and Warehouse Workers Union, uh, has a radical history, came out of the 1934 um, dock workers' strike in San Francisco the gen- and the general strike. Uh, they have a much more radical history uh, and much more focus globally than most American unions. Part of it was because it was led by a great Australian named, <coughs> excuse me, named Harry Bridges. And Bridges got the longshoremen to work look uh, much broader than, say, most workers do. And, and longshoremen tend to do that anyway, but I think Bridges was an additional impetus. Um, so... Some of their members had been very much involved in struggles around Southern Africa and wanted to build support for that. So through an educational process, got their local union to agree not to handle any South African cargo. Well, in 1984, there was a Dutch ship, the Ned Lloyd Kimberley, that came into the San Francisco Harbor, and the men worked the rest of the cargo, but there was some cargo for South Africa. They wouldn't touch it. So the ship stayed there, cost thousands and thousands of dollars. The, the shippers went apeshit, uh, went to federal court, and eventually the feds threatened to fine the local like $10,000 a day, and they finally gave in and worked the cargo. But basically, this was, a, this was an excellent example of worker-based, uh, worker-to-worker solidarity across the world. These workers were conscious of what was going on in South Africa. There'd been a whole process, and that's what I get Larry to talk about in that article so right. that we see it's not just a one-time thing. But this work requires uh, thinking about it, requires conceptualizing it, invi- involves organizing. It doesn't just happen. There are people out there making it, making it happen, and most people don't understand that at all. What, what year was it that you conducted that interview, Kim? That was in 85. So, okay. the, so the, the action was in, I think, November, maybe December, late 84. And right, right after that, I talked to Larry. Did your print shop, you, did your local there have any connection with the longshoremen? Did you work with them at all or nothing no. like that? One of the problems with the longshoremen, in my opinion, is they're pretty much a, a self-contained community. And they can do neat stuff within it, but they don't have any connections to the larger community in general. What was neat was we were still able to, because this was such a righteous action, we were able to bring people out of the community to support them, but we never got that solidarity back sort of one way. Yeah, and a key component, bringing the community in and working with the issues in the community that comes up throughout the book in South Africa and the Philippines. Okay, so in Chapter 2, it, I thought it was really interesting, and it's something that comes up in later chapters as well, and this is this kind of 
communication strategies and tactics that are used. Um, how are we getting the message out? How are workers getting the message out that we should have this internationalism? And really building off your point that it's not something that's going to happen automatically. Um, and this is, of course, I think the critical component looking at Marx's work um, is that there's a lot of people because of that that just assume that working class people are going to naturally take on this consciousness, identify as a worker all the time, uh, make these connections overseas with international movements and workers. And like you said, that has to all be consciously done. Yeah. Um, and part of that is, you know, kind of building the building that consciousness. Um, so you note that the TIE, Transnationals Information Exchange, the CAITS, the CATES, I guess you would yeah. call it, uh, Center for Alternative Industrial and Technological Systems, the TICL, Transnational Information Center in London, the Women Working Worldwide. Uh, all of these groups um, played an effort in this communication strategy. They all had different publications and different projects that they were doing. Can you talk about maybe some of these efforts and the importance of the communicating in internationalism? Okay, but let me put this into a context, mm -hmm. is that I didn't know about this stuff. I, uh, a, a friend of mine uh, encouraged me to go to Europe. I can tell that there's a longer story behind that. But I went to Europe early, and uh, I went to London, and I found all these groups. And one of the things was that at that time, uh, you could go to, like, there were all kinds of radical bookstores, and you can go get their, you could get their magazines, and they had addresses, and I'd call them up. Uh, now, I'd been engaged in some anti-nuclear weapons stuff, and so they were excited to find an American uh, that was political. And so they opened their doors to me, and people were just marvelous. I mean, one guy that I met, he said, look, I've got, I'm house-setting a flat in Islington, which at that time was the hot spot in London. He says, here's the key. Why don't you have it? You have it for seven days. I had my own flat in Islington for seven days off of some cat that I just met. It was, it was amazing, that type of thing. And, and so people are saying, well, you ought to go see this person, or when you're in this town, you go see this person. You know, things like that. So this was happening, and I find all this neat stuff happening in England that I had no idea of. I'm blown away. And I'm traveling from the south going north, uh, and eventually, at the, towards the end of this trip, I end up getting turned on to the folks that were establishing international labor reports, and then I had this conference, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. No, no it's, it's funny because that was my... Uh my next question or the lead in was going to be that you were there to protest Reagan, uh, putting Pershing and cruise missiles, uh, in, in West, in West Germany, correct? Right. Well, it started earlier. I mean, in, in early 1983, Reagan announced that we were going to have what was called the MX missile. And the MX missile was a new missile that could, could land within 50 feet of a Soviet command center. We saw a great escalation of the cold war. It was very dangerous. So over the months, there were several protests in July or in June. I, I joined one where 75 of us went onto the base to block the launching of the missile. Uh, the, the Air Force requirements was that nobody could be within an hour or, excuse me, within um, a mile of the launch pad. And so our plan was to go in and flood the launch pad. And I got within 20, 20 feet, uh, well, about 20 yards of the MX missile. And it was just sitting in a canister above ground. It was really eerie. And uh, then the fog came in, and I eventually decided I was going to, I was going, 
I'd been on the base like three days. I decided to turn myself in, and not only was the guard surprised to see me, but I was surprised that they had a rent-a-cop guarding the MX. <laughs> true story. Daniel Ellsberg was in on that, too. <laughs> right on. Um, but a great story. But out of that, shortly thereafter, a friend of mine that we normally would have a for his birthday, he'd always hold some political fundraiser to raise money for different projects. And I said, what are we going to do uh, for your birthday this year? And he says, I just found out that the decision to, to station the cruise and Pershing missiles in West Germany was going to be on his birthday, December 12th. He says, let's go. And just off the top of my head, I said, yes. Changed my life. I mean, a five, not even a five-minute conversation. So I went over. I went over early, so met all these other people. Eventually ended up going to Germany and... Uh, we had a barricade, and the cops came to start pulling people off, and I ended up taking a, cop, a couple of cops out and got arrested <laughs> and then talked my way out of it. Uh, it was quite, a, quite an amazing trip. <laughs> Welcome to Europe. <laughs> is, there, is there anything else you want to say about those particular projects because I'm going to get into part two? Were there anything, any of the, the ones that I had mentioned that you specifically wanted to talk about any of their work or even the one, obviously, that you were most involved with, the ILR? Yeah. No, the International Labor Reports is the big one. It was a really fascinating uh, effort to build this labor solidarity around the world. It had been done by some people who were on various groups on the British left, which was still quite robust. This is in, this is in 83. Um, and they started this, this magazine that's never been replicated. In fact, most people don't even know about it, unfortunately. It's, it was... It was excellent. It came out bi-monthly, about 28 pages, but it had pictures and articles. And they had links with folks around the world. Now, they were particularly strong uh, with people in the Philippines and also in South Africa. So a lot of coverage there. But over the years, you could see it develop as struggles are going on in Europe, as they're going on in Latin America, as they're going on uh, even in Eastern Europe. We started to cover that, you know, after, after 89. Um, so things started changing a lot, and they were really this amazing project. Now, my tie, I didn't have any involvement in creating it. I can't claim that. But as a result of meeting them, and they felt impressed enough to ask me if I would represent ILR in North America, which I did from 84 to 89. Uh, but an incredible project. Uh, the other projects over time all faded except for... I believe work, uh, women working worldwide is still viable. The, the others aren't. Right on. Okay, so we're going to move into part two here, and this is going to get into some more sort of a theoretical analysis, um, laying the groundwork for a lot of the work that we're going to be talking about. So you write in part two, quote, militant mass-based nationwide labor movements of a new type have emerged in the last three disparate c countries in different parts of the world, Brazil, the Philippines, and South Africa over the past 20 years. In chapter four, unquote, in chapter four, you explore and provide comparative methods for understanding these labor movements, arguing that studying a single case is insufficient. Can you talk about the methodology that you use to compare these studies and how this differs from previous scholars? So maybe the limitations of structural analysis and previous analyses. Okay. Now, when I start, all right, so I was talking about that trip in England. I met the folks at International Labor Reports. Key person that I met there was a woman named Winnie Lou Pradell. 
And Perdell was this real tiny woman, no idea the great big bulky man, you know, <laughs> that we uh, yeah. associate with uh, with trade unionism here. Little tiny woman, but she had helped. She and another woman had led twenty six thousand workers out on uh, out on strike in the Bataan export processing zone in, in Philippines in nineteen eighty two. And she told me about this new labor movement being developed in the Philippines, which is called the KMU. It's, it, it translates to Kilosung Mayo Uno, which translates to May 1st movement. In fact, they consciously uh, connect that with the Chicago martyrs and the, and the struggle for May Day, which should tell you something pretty amazing about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can go into that later. So I... I'm figuring. I'm trying to understand how I can best think about and write about the KMU, uh, and that's where I start. Then, after I start that out, then I start thinking about. You know, I'm reading other things, uh, particularly Gay Seidman's very uh, innovative book, uh, "Manufacturing Militants," uh, about. She compared uh, the unions in South Africa with those in Brazil, and that was a real stimulating. Uh, book and it turned and I was by that time I was in grad school at, at Wisconsin and studied with gay so we had some conversations I'm thinking about this um, she does a very innovative study I think you know as I get into later that I disagree with how she did it but it was very innovative I thought about it stuff like this and part of the thing that I came to understand is that a structural analysis is not is not accurate it's not the way to understand things why i say this is that what she was claiming was the rapid industrialization of south africa and brazil which did happen she's she's done really good work on this is that that led to a particular type of trade unionism which we later we call so as uh, social movement unionism but she was saying structural changes led to that particular choice that's I, I disagree with that. Uh, what it did was it sort of it provided um, it provided an impetus for the rise of the labor movement. Which way the labor movement went could have they could have gone many different ways in a number of different ways, um, but that was not caused by the structure which she had attributed. She had claimed that that had. So that's where I'm getting into trying to understand this. So tied into this in the late. 80s, there was a debate between a man named Peter Waterman in the Netherlands and Rob Lambert and Eddie Webster in South Africa about this new type of trade unionism that we're becoming aware of happening, uh, of, of, of emerging, and particularly based on three cases, that of the, uh, the CUT, C-U-T in Brazil, um, COSATU, well, Let's see, no, it would be Fosatu first and then later Kosatu in South Africa and then the KMU in the Philippines were trying to understand this. So there's an international debate between Peter on one hand and Rob and Eddie on the other. At that time, I go to grad school with Peter Waterman. So I'm talking to Peter a lot. We're discussing this stuff. Uh, many hours of conversation, a wonderful time. And so I started thinking about this, and I said, I don't think either of these two guys, these two groups have it right. I want to try to think this out based on my experiences in the Philippines. Because I had already been out to the Philippines four times, so I had some idea. I'd seen a lot of the country, things like that. 
So I entered the debate right of uh, an article in 1992. Actually, there were two in 1992, talking of trying to define the social movement unionism. Now, now one of those articles, uh, which is in chapter six, and I think eight in the book, uh, was that was the first one that I wrote. And I okay. Really get into it. Get into that. I didn't realize that was the first one though. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So. So yeah. that I'm trying to understand, you know, I'm looking at what they're saying. Now, remember, you have to, here's the thing you have to remember. All these guys, Peter, Rob, and, and Eddie were academics, and they were really engaged academics, they were, which I think is really neat, right. but they really, they never had any experiences working on the shop floor. When I came to academia, I'd already spent nine years on the shop floor in printing, I'd worked in the book binding, I'd worked on the machines themselves, I ran uh, a printing press myself. So I had a lot of practical experience that they, they didn't have. So I was wanting more than what they had. And because of my experiences in the Philippines, I'm able to go out there and I'm talking to people on all kinds of levels that, that these guys just don't don't get to do. Sure. So this is where I come up with this, with my article on social movement unions, which has yet to be surpassed even though that was published in 1992. There's, is there the existing label? Well, actually, let me, let me save this because this could be a whole different conversation. Let's do a basic, can you describe just your definition of social movement unionism? Okay. Um, well, let's put it in the context of, of overall. Traditionally, there's been, I would argue, three different types of trade unionism. There's economic, political, and what I call social movement unionism. The economic trade union is largely what we have in the U.S. It's working for the members, trying to improve their lives and stuff, but accepting the industrial relations system and accepting the larger social order. So that's the economic type. Then there's the political type. Now, particularly we saw in Africa with the, with the nationalist movements in the 50s and 60s, unions were... Uh, <coughs> Unions were recruited to join the liberation struggles and use their position on the shop floor and econ their economic power to help the liberation struggles. But they basically subsumed themselves to the liberation struggles. Now, this was also at the same time very much influenced by the Soviets because the Soviet model, which comes back from Lenin in 1902, what is to be done? You can't have, you can't have a radical trade unionism uh, by themselves. Workers are basically too stupid to understand the larger picture. So now what we have, coming in the, coming in the uh, 70s and certainly by the 80s, you have what I call social movement unionism. So we see it in, with Coote, and I'm not going to, to butcher uh, the language by trying to translate it, but it's Coote in Brazil, Cosatu, or, uh, Fosatu in South Africa, Federation of South African Trade Unions, and then the KMU in the Philippines. Their viewpoint was that workers were smart enough to figure this out, that they didn't need intellectuals to tell them to do one thing or the other, that the workers could educate themselves, that they could, they could, they could take a, a critical look at society and understand what was going on. And so it was out of this they created an entirely new type of trade unionism uh, in each of these countries, and that they saw that the conditions on the shop floor were tied into the national situation, so how the social order was structured, but also uh, tied it in with the global 
economic, political, cultural system. Okay, so it was a global analysis, and they're putting trade unionism in this, and they're seeing what could be done, and they're organizing in these countries and played key roles in overthrowing dictatorships in all three of these countries. Okay, and then later, uh, I build off, off those three experiences to develop this concept of social unionism. So a very radically different approach to trade unionism. We've never seen anything like it. You argue that ideology is a key factor in developing this kind of trade unionism. Um, you even argue that sometimes material conditions are, are maybe secondary. Uh, this challenges, of course, this goes back to something we just mentioned, but this challenges those who say that material conditions are always the driving factor uh, or that workers' relation to their job is their primary identity. Um, I think this is really important because this also gets into some of your critiques of the limitations of uh, Piven and Cloward's analyses. So if you want to mention some of those, I think it would be useful for folks. Okay, well, one of the things is I, don't, I do not believe that material conditions predominate in all situations. They can lead to changes. They can get people to think about things, but they don't necessarily tell people how they're going to respond. On the other hand, if your material conditions are such that nobody's even looking around to try to understand this, that can be an effect. But the idea I have is that both ideology and material conditions have a dialectical relationship. They affect each other. And, but there's no one case in which one will always predominate one way or the other. So I think that is, yeah, I think that is a real important uh, understanding. And, of course, that's going to challenge my Marxist colleagues who tend to put the, the uh, material factors as being, being predominant. And cases. identity as a worker. Oh, yeah. Um, one of the things that we see in talking about identities is that um, you know, leftists in general, it's broader than just the Marxists, but they tend to think that just because a worker, somebody works for a living, they're going to identify themselves, see themselves as a worker. And some do. Some do. But some see themselves as a spouse, as a parent. Uh, they might see themselves, say, in a particular trade, like an electrician. Uh, there's a, many different ways that you can, can see yourself. Some, some see working for a living being important to their life. Others, it's a way to make money so I can go play rock and roll and smoke dope in the evening. Right. You know, there's all kinds of different things. Right. And so, you can, in my opinion, you can't assume anybody who works sees themselves as a worker. That's got to be something that's, that's got to be set down and talked about and say. Or they might sometimes and not others. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the other thing. It's not a static relationship or identity. Right. It's something it's, that changes with time. It morphs. Not only does it morph, but it will change. I was just writing something uh, uh, while I was copying something over today, and there was a, a, an excellent study of women trade unions, uh, trade unions in uh, – factories in Nigeria and India comparison. And what they said, well, an example they said was that women, uh, women workers can have many different viewpoints. They can be, they can be workers in these world market factories, you know, but one can be run into North Indian racism when she's from the South. They can be, uh, uh, 
let's see, I can't, I'm trying to remember real quickly uh, what the example was, but, but it was that, you know, in one place she, she would be, say, mistreated as a woman, so she'd pull on her identity as a woman. Another case that she'd be jacked up for not working hard enough, so she would pull in her, her identity as a uh, working class woman. You know, conscious. So what, what the idea of identity is, is sort of floating. There's no one dominant one or one that holds at all times. It's that people can mobilize us. We have many different identities, and we can mobilize them as for the situation we're in and as we see fit. Right, right. And to your point, scholars from the outside can't project that identity onto someone if they don't embody it themselves. So just because you want to think of them as this worker or this... Uh, subject in the you know a revolution or whatever it may be that doesn't mean that's what that's how people see themselves absolutely um so okay i think it's important all the stuff you've mentioned about communications um ideology you also mentioned the connection between social movements and the these cultural processes which i find very important obviously we're sitting in a space that's called <laughs> politics art roots and culture um here i'm thinking in the book of you mentioning bert Klanderman's, quote, conception of levels of social construction, uh, public discourse, persuasive communication is initiated by movement organizations, consciousness raising from participation in episodes of collective action, and the creation of collective identities submerged in networks, unquote. So none of this is static. Again, it's constantly changing. Collective identity, and this is a key point, not always created through uh, a deliberative process. Um, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Right. Um, that, I thought, was a really interesting point. Another key point is that, quote, changing structural conditions, as we've mentioned, do not necessarily lead to the emergence of a social movement, but a change in how individuals perceive the current structure or changes within, uh, unquote. So that's just it's sort of wrapping up some of what we mentioned, but I don't know if there's anything else you wanted you wanted to note on that. I don't think there's a whole bunch. It's just... Part of the thing is human beings aren't static. And the way we tend to think about subjects, that being anything we're focusing on, whether it's workers, whether it's women, whether it's gays and lesbians, whatever, is we tend to think of them as, as static. And, and I don't think that's true. They're dynamic. They're, con they're constantly evolving. Uh, they're doing good things. They're doing bad things. They're, you know, there's all kinds of things like this. And this is a radically different approach to understanding human behavior than we normally get. And it also requires that before you can claim any type of conscious consciousness, you have to show the process by which it's built. And that, I think, is really important stuff. Yeah, that's, the, that's I, maybe one of the most important points that I think people should take out of this book. Um, not just that you have to look at it, but that there's no way to understand how we can replicate it if we don't look at it. Yeah. Um, in chapter seven, so let's get let's get more specific now, and we'll get to your favorite topic uh, in detail. So in chapter seven, you lay the groundwork and describe sort of the economic developments in the Philippines and the socioeconomic context in which unions eventually formed the KMU. So can you talk about Philippine economic development from as you say, independence uh, to deregulation, that's 1946 to 1962. Well, actually, to give, it, to give it fair credit, we have to go back earlier than that. The Philippines was colonized first by the Spanish and then later by the Americans. So the Spanish started colonizing in 1565. 
uh, I don't know if you remember this, but when you were in high school, you learned about Magellan being the first guy to sail around the world. <laughs> well, Magellan, this is 1521-22. Um, Magellan didn't make it all the way. He got to the Philippines and pissed off the wrong Filipino. Um, Magellan was killed in the Philippines by a chief named Lapu Lapu. Um, anyway, they, the Filipinos let, them, let the crews sail home. They went home. They told uh, the Spanish king about all this incredibly beautiful and lush, productive agricultural land. And so in, to thank them, he sent his troops back and started colonizing the Philippines in 1565. And perhaps one of the... So that the economic system was set up to serve the needs of somebody else, in this case, the Spaniards. And then you also have the, the Roman Catholic Church comes in, all that. Um, in 1898... Uh, the U.S. goes to war with Spain. This is the Spanish-American War. This is where Teddy Roosevelt rode up San Juan Hill and became this great hero and all this other shit. Anyway, what most people don't realize is that part of that war was fought in the Philippines. What had happened, there was a brand-new squadron of Navy ships. They were modern steel-hulled ships. They were ordered to go to, to Manila Bay. Uh, the Spanish fleet was a wooden, decrepit fleet that couldn't get out of Manila Bay on a, on a soft day, on a safe day, and they blew them apart, and this is a great naval history. And then they told the Spanish commander, because by that time, the, the Filipinos had, I forgot to say this, but the Filipinos had launched the first national liberation struggle in Asia in 1896, and they had already liberated most of their country except around the walled city of Manila. So the Spanish are surrounded by the Filipinos, and boy, are they pissed. So the commander says, look, you can surrender to us, or you can surrender to them. And the Spanish commander was no dummy. He says, I'll take door number one, surrender to the U.S. We started putting troops in. The troops started spreading out. The Filipinos fought. We ended up having an incredibly brutal war. Estimates of anywhere from, from 400,000, 500,000 to a million Filipinos were killed. That's 10 to 20% of the entire population, men, women, and children. Okay, so eventually, after this very brutal war, the U.S. took control of the Philippines. And then, again, they, sh they maintained the economy not for the Filipinos, but to, for the Americans. So the, the economy shifts from Spain to benefiting the U.S. Okay, now, U.S., uh, after a while, the U.S., it wasn't worth their time. They decided to give them independence. But World War II intervened, the Japanese invaded, and then uh, the U.S., promised the Filipinos if they'd fight back, they would get U.S. citizenship. They fought back. They didn't get U.S. citizenship until oh, 2005, 2010, something like that. But anyway, long story short, as you get independence, the Philippine, Manila was the second most devastated city in the war, only after Warsaw. Um, devastated, the U.S. said, look, we'll give you, I think it was 500 million dollars worth of aid and stuff if you will allow us to maintain our bases on the in the in the island and you will you have to get permission of the, the of the u.s president before you change the value of your currency and all this other stuff this is supposedly with independence so the filipinos hung in there and and they rebuilt their country and by the 1960s philippines was seen to be the next japan in asia they really had built up a, a pretty strong economy. It didn't go down to the people now, but they laid the basis for that. And, and then it's, it's a complicated thing, but the long and the short is that the U.S. intervened, uh, screwed things up. Uh, 
Ferdinand Marcos comes to power as a reformer at the, you know, and then decides he wants to stay as a dictator and he stayed in the U.S. to support him because the U.S. was fighting this war in Vietnam, which is about 900 miles to the, to the, uh, be to the west of the Philippines, and we needed the Philippine bases to support our war effort. So we're supporting this dictator. That's under this dictator. So Ferdinand Marcos had been elected uh, uh, legally and then in 72 declared, uh, declared martial law. And um, so this was a terrible time. Over 50,000 people had gotten arrested. A lot of people were killed by Marcos and his people, et cetera, et cetera. During this time, some of the trade unionist leaders got together and decided they were going to try to organize. And so you start seeing organization in different sectors, different regional political economies. I gotta explain. Most people see that they think of a small country and think it only has one economy. It's not true in the Philippines. The Philippines has a number of regions, about 10 islands that are economically important, but there's a number of regions with different economies with totally different histories because of their insertion in the world trade patterns. So I looked at, so eventually, I looked at four of them. So I looked at capitalist agriculture in Mindanao, looking at timber and bananas. I looked at extractive mining in Cebu, which was copper. I looked at plantation sugar on Negros, and eventually uh, also light manufacturing in Bataan. So back to that uh, export processing zone where Wing Perdell had helped lead the strike. But... So each of these different areas had different political economies, different histories, totally, and yet people had gone into these areas and were organizing unions in these different regions. And eventually, in 1980, May 1st, 1980, they came together in Manila and united under the banner of the KMU. Again, that stands for May 1st Movement, and was consciously, consciously connected to Chicago in 1886. So that's, so that's happening in this period. So when I get out there and uh, I go out, so this is in January of 1986, uh, I go out, things are terrible. I've seen what's going around in Manila. People are taking me to different work sites. I'm talking to people all the time. It was, a, it was amazing. Uh, they also encouraged me to go to Negros, which was the heart of the sugar industry, took me to... Uh, a malnutrition ward, which was just terrible. I mean, I have small hands, but I could put my hands around the thighs of babies that were suffering from malnutrition. It was terrible. They also took me up to that export processing zone in Bataan. A bunch of women smuggled me inside the zone. Uh, I got in there, and they had a, a shack out. They were on strike, so they had a had a shack out out front so they could keep me in there and the guards that were traveling around wouldn't see me. One of the funny things, and I don't tell this in the book, though, was that Filipinos, and especially women, are great matchmakers. So what they do is they had me in this, this little shack and they'd bring women in and say, this is Kim, and he's single. Trying <laughs> uh, to hook me up. Anyway, so we spent the night talking and discussing our lives and things like this, and then the next morning you know, uh, I got to get out of there. Well, they put, they have these things called tricycles, which is, which is a Honda 50, uh, Honda 50 um, uh, CC motorcycle with the sidecar, and they put me in there. Now, you've got to picture this. I've got this long beard, 
you know, I'm white, I'm much bigger than these people. And they put these three women all around me, like they're going to shield me. And we get to the gate, and this guard looks at me. And for fans of Hogan's Heroes, you'll remember this. He gave me this, <laughs> I know nothing look, and told us to get out and let me go. I was dead in the water, if, he, if he'd called me. <laughs> My story was about an inch thick. Uh, so, but, and then, you know, I went back to Manila, I'm seeing what they call lock bayons or long marches where people are marching from different parts of the country. There was a big rally in Manila on February 2 where the, the uh, coalition of radical organizations across the country called Bayon came together. And they had, I got a picture of the Bayon flag flying over the central location rally point in all of Manila. So it was a great upsurge and... So I'm, that's February 2nd, and then I left on February 5th. Now, the word on the street was that if Marcos won the election, that he would reinstate martial law. So things were getting really touchy. Uh, about 3 o'clock that morning, a dog started barking in the compound I was staying, and you know I had to go clean my shorts and stuff like that. It was yeah. pretty heavy-duty time. But anyway, I got out, and then um, Marcos's corruption got exposed. And people rallied. There was a part of the military that was corrupt, but they rebelled supposedly against Marcos's to save their own asses. The Catholic Church pulled, called people out. Millions responded, and that's what was called the People's Power. Uh, People's Power won in in February uh, February of 1986, and eventually Marcos left. Uh, the KMU. Uh, was going to have a, a general strike the next day, so there was never a general strike call. But but uh, Marcos left and was was replaced by Corazon Aquino. Um, so you hand, so I'm there, and so I leave only 20 days before Marcos leaves. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had no idea, obviously, uh, sure. but it was a time of great upsurge, great uncertainty, great. Oh, God, the, you know, the tension you could cut with a knife and stuff like that. Give people an idea, because this, this leads into two things. Um, give people an idea of the context in which the KMU is operating. So people hear something like, oh, there's a dictatorship. It must be a tough government over there. There were, I believe you mentioned in the book, at one point, 69 leaders who were either tortured, killed, or actually killed. And then there were many others who were tortured, jailed, or murdered. So there was like, this, it, we don't have to, you know, the numbers, but I mean, the, the point that I'm making is that the context in which they operated was far more intense, I think, than a lot of labor union organizers can imagine here in the United States. One, which leads to what were the kind of structures that allowed this organization to persist with under this kind of repression? What kind of educational program did it have that allowed it to keep itself rolling and keep leaders coming up and, and being empowered to continue this operation through that kind of repression. Okay. No, this is, a per, this is an, exact, uh, uh, an excellent uh, uh, issue because it's, it's crucial to understand the cameo. So they, remember I said that people were organizing in these different political economies. They came together as a KMU, uh, both to advance their interests but also to protect each other. And what they had was the, the Philippines is not an industrialized country, but still there's a certain amount of economic uh, development and that, um, that, 
workers had the ability, they had some power be, behind the ability to shut, shut things down. So, for example, um, there were, there, well, there weren't any strikes until 1975, and then there was the first one. You started getting more strikes after 80. There's even more. In, in 82, you're right, Marcos uh, arrested 69 leaders of the KMU, including the Secretary General and the, the chairperson, which are the two highest people. He, he, uh, he arrested all of them. Uh, there were others that were killed. There was, it was a thing in the Philippines. They have sort of an um, ironic sense of humor. They call salvaging. So normally salvaging is to, you know, is to preserve something. Well, there, to be salvaged meant to be killed and then left by the side of the road, sort of as a message to everybody that you don't want to mess with us. A lot of torture, stuff like this. Um, part of the thing was that had, I've, got to put, I've got to put it in a larger context in the sense that in the, in, in the late 60s, you had the emergence of the Communist Party there. Now, there, there had been one that had been oriented to the Soviet Union. It goes back to the 30s. Um, in 68, they created the new Communist Party, the Communist Party of the Philippines. And one of the things that the Communist Party did was they made an analysis which got referred to as a national democratic analysis. And they were trying to understand the causes of uh, the problems of the Philippines. So external orientation, uh, bureaucracy, corruption, things like this. And there's a, they were much more eloquent than I am right now. I haven't thought of it for a little bit. But anyway, they had this national democratic analysis. Now, some of the national democrats were in the Communist Party, but there were other people that, that accepted that analysis, but refused to join the Communist Party or put, a, put themselves under their discipline. So the KMU was one of those as an organization. They thought the National Democratic Analysis was the best out there, saw themselves as that. So they gave them some structure to organize by. And so, you know, they've already got these unions. How do we develop our unions? Part of the thing was presenting this National Democratic Analysis, not just to shop stewards like we might do here, but to actually go down and educate everybody in a union. So, for example, they had three different, eventually they had three different levels. One was a day-long trade union thing that they do on picket lines and things like this. A second was a three-day analysis called Genuine Trade Unionism. And then later they developed what was called KPD, which was an analysis of a future-looking society, what they wanted. But the, the first one, the PAMA for the, for the picket lines and the general trade unionism, the three-day study, these were both to help people think about, provide a place where people could come, they could think about it. And it wasn't like you have to understand this, but it was much more interactive. It was based off a of free area in Brazil, that, that type of model where people would use their experiences. Because you know, these people had a lot of experience. They weren't coming in blank and, and was building on respect. It's something we should do more in, in the United States. Um, in general, not just the trade unions, but including the trade unions. But anyway, so by 1986, all 86,000 people in the members in the National Federation of Sugar Workers. And these are some of the poorest people on earth. They're 
conditions are terrible. But all 86,000 of them had at least had that one-day PAMA education experience. So they didn't just li uh, limit it to the leaders. They got down to the rank and file, and they would have these meetings. They would talk about this stuff. In this process of treating people with respect, then people would refuse to, to not accept that, that disrespect anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it helped. It helped them understand what they were, what the overall situation was, and their place in it. And they could see that if they joined together, they could change the conditions of their lives. And so they joined in trade unions, and not interestingly, not just in in industry or factories. This also you had, like I say, this happened in these in these uh, um, in these in these plantation in these sugar plantations. Um, way back in the middle of the hills and stuff like this. You had them in department stores. So you had a, a type of program that spoke to the ordinary people. The ordinary people grasped that and made it their own. And they gave them the confidence, it gave them the clarity to fight and to win and to realize that if, they, if they'd stay together, they could survive. And they could change things. And they didn't have any other alternatives. The Philippines, like I say, is, is basically set up on an economy that's designed to help other countries other than the Filipinos. So there was no other option, but this option really resonated with them. So people joined together, and they were willing to fight and suffer torture and suffer killing and stuff like that, but they wouldn't give up. And... Part of that, beyond just the spirit and the courage of the people who are there, just that resilience. Um, but, and, and you mentioned the education program, but if you could also note the actual internal structure of the organization, that it wasn't, uh, say, 100% horizontal, nor was it 100% vertical, uh, that there was, it was integrated in many different ways. And so it was, you know, set up in a way that if you did arrest 69 leaders, the whole thing just didn't fall apart. Absolutely. Um, the initial organization was what we would call vertical. So somebody in the central office in Manila, and then there'd be a regional office, and then local office and stuff like that. Traditional trade unionism, just like we've seen in the United States, okay? That's what we call a vertical organization. But in 1982, and this, was, this is where the story about Wing Pudel and meeting her is so crucial, is that one of the things that they realized in Bataan, now they're under the... Excuse me. They're they're having organizers there. These organizers are getting arrested by by the police and things like that. And the workers realized they had to do something to protect these folks. So what they did was they not only organized by by individual union because you have each factory has its own union, but they got unions from different organizations together and they created what they called the alliance. And the Alliance Transforms Filipino Unionization. This is a contribution made by women, young women. Most of these women are between 16 and 24. Um, they got together and they said, it's not just enough to take care of us. We've got to take care of everybody together. And so the Alliance idea is a horizontal um, structure that overlays the vertical structure. So you've got three types of alliances. One is by geography, so a local town, could be a district, city, even an island. Okay. Then you had uh, an industrial alliance, so everybody that was in healthcare or mining, you could 
would see those unions join up. And then there are what they're conglomerate uh, alliances, which are, uh, say, in a, where capitalists own several different industries or factories. They would come together because they have that joint, uh, that joint ownership. So this development of alliances, particularly the geographical alliances, overlays the vertical. And this is what, structurally, this is what's allowed the KMU to, to survive. So you think of it in a, a sort of an, a mesh over, overlying this. To give you an idea how important this was. Well, so let me, well, let me take a step further before I make this point. Is that in addition to building this among the trade unions, the KMU unions are also joining with other national democratic organizations. So you had women's organizations, you had peasants, you had the urban poor, you had students and things like this. And in 1984 in Mindanao, which is the big southern island there, they came together and created what they call the Welgenbayan. It's officially, it's Welgenugbayan, but it's, the slang is Welgenbayan. And what this is is a people strike. And, you know, in the West, we think of a general strike as being just the centerpiece and everything's going to fall down. Um, Filipinos go beyond that. That general strike is just the first step. Okay, so the workers go out on strike. The government workers shut down. All the stores close. They put barricades to prevent transportation coming, things like this. And they're able to shut this down even in the face of horrific repression. In Mindanao, in, in, in November of 1984, they shut down the whole island, you know, the first time they pulled this off. And then they had a couple of others. The, the third one was so, was so strong, the military came to the, the, the Bayan leaders. This was the coalition called Bayan, means people or country. Anyway, they came to the Bayan leaders, and they said, uh, please, let's end this strike. You're hurting us too bad. And they said, We'll call it off when we're good and ready. And they held for three days. So that this was even able to stop the military repression. That power, that power was amazing. Where you see this again is, again, back in Bataan, uh, in 1985, uh, Westinghouse Corporation of the U.S. Uh, greased the hands of the Marcos government, and, agree and Marcos agreed for them to build a nuclear power plant on an active earthquake fault, um, yeah, and and so so a nuclear power plant on an active earthquake fault, you know, in an earthquake zone and stuff like this, and eventually, the workers led by this alliance out of the export processing zone called Ambabala, Ambabala mobilized people across the whole province, shut down the province. Workers marched for three days to fight with the armored cars sent to. to to, to break through and stuff like this, that power plant has never been operationalized. That was in 1985. So the Filipinos, now this is under a dictator. They're able to build these organizations that, that not only can survive but actually take uh, active inter intervention in, 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 in government affairs and stuff like this. No, it's, it's, it's really impressive, and it's, you know... I. When I read the passages about those, it was like, you're thinking of the difficulties that we sometimes have organizing here in the United States, <laughs> and of course you want to force people to read that these sections. Um, let's let me stick with the KMU, Kim. I want to okay. 
we'll jump to chapter 11 and discuss Africa after a couple more questions. But I, I want you to also talk about the three levels of labor internationalism uh, that you note on page 209. Um, I think this is really important as well. So if you wouldn't mind sort of running through those for us. Okay. Well, I'm trying. See, this this ties in. This ties in with the KMU. In case folks haven't figured out, I've been profoundly affected by the KMU. <laughs> um, in 1984, they came up with an idea they called the International Solidarity Affair. And the idea was to, to, was to invite foreign trade unions to come to the Philippines for a 10-day program to learn about the experiences of Filipino workers. Now, again, Marcos is still in power. This is 84. He didn't leave till 86. So... Workers would come in, particularly the Australians have been really good, uh, really good on this. They'd come, there'd be, there'd be ceremonies and things like that, but the key to it was to get these workers out into the provinces. In other words, outside of Manila. So Manila's much more built up than anywhere, um, but you get to see the, the, the living reality of the country once you get out of Manila into the provinces. And you'd go out there and you'd meet with workers and... Uh, you'd spend time on picket lines and things like this. And the idea was to both let you know, help you find out about the situation that the Filipinos, Filipino workers in the KMU are facing, about their problems, how they're, you know, what they're doing, but also to give them the sense that workers elsewhere cared about them. Okay, so I went out in 88 on this, and then again I went back in 2015 to do this. This is a, this is a pretty incredible program. But um, anyway, so the so one of the things that the KMU has very consciously done from early on is trying to project how they could build international labor solidarity. Now, at best, it's in most cases it's just rhetoric. You know, people might say on May Day, yeah, I'll power to the working class and crap like that, and they never do anything about it. The KMU wanted to build that solidarity. They wanted it to both to educate people, to share with what their experiences were, take what they learned, but also to build support for themselves. Okay, so an incredible program. And I'm trying to think about how we can understand this. And so I wrote this article. It was originally written in 1996 and eventually published on a website in 2000 where I'm trying to understand this internationalism. And I came up with three category so the first level the simplest level is building this worker to worker solidarity uh, per, uh, being able to stop movement of goods uh, across borders and things like that the second type which encompassed the first but was, was broader was one in trying to help workers say overturn their social order so it'd be like supporting the Filipinos trying to come up with a new social social order the third version, which encompassed the previous two, was to how do we change our own social order uh, and to build solidarity that way. In other words, if the U.S. is out um, extending its empire stuff, if we could stop things here, then that would make life better for workers around the world. And so this encompassed everything from, from the just basic worker-to-worker -worker level up to changing the whole social order stuff like that. So that's what the idea is. And, and, and can you talk about also the KMU's six-part communication strategy 
And if we, if, if you want, I can, all, I can give you some lead-ins because I am turned yeah. exactly to that page. So um, I, I, I'm going to help you out here a little bit because okay. I know I'm asking you some very detailed stuff. And there's a million, uh, again, I am looking forward to this book being more accessible for people because it's made me, uh, I'll probably write two articles from this book. Maybe, probably one will be a review and one will be uh, an ideas about media after reading some of this, but, um, so six aspects to KM, this is quoting from Kim's book. This is on page 216. There are six aspects to the KMU's communication strategy that have been designed to build international labor internationalism, both in general and specifically with the KMU itself. One aspect has been the development of periodicals. So I think that's, that's one of them that I found interesting. Um, and some of these went out more often than others. Another publishing effort which is tied to the KMU's internal education program is the publication and dissemination of their key trade union organizing manual, so that genuine trade unionism GTU manual um, that they pass all over the place. Um, so I think that's, that's also something that made me think about stuff we could be passing around Michigan City. Um, another aspect of the KMU's communication strategy is encouraging groups in other countries to set up solidarity or support committees which are designed to communicate updates on the situation in the Philippines and specifically KMU struggles to people and workers of other countries. I thought that was really interesting as well. Um, and then a fourth aspect is international travel by leaders. Obviously difficult right now, but something that it, just through listening your experiences, I think anyone who's hearing this interview, uh, I think one of the things they should be picking up is how important it is uh, to do that traveling and how many doors it will open for you. Uh, you're a perfect I mean, it's just your story is like a perfect example of this. Um, a fifth aspect is the development of exposure visits uh, throughout the Philippines by foreigners. And, of course, you mentioned uh, the – what was it called again? I'm sorry. the uh, Inter I International Solidarity Affair. Yeah, the, the ISA. And then a sixth aspect of the communication strategy is the initiation and development of International Solidar Solidarity Affair as a means to both communicate to worker – uh, visitors, the real situation of Filipino workers, and to involve KMU members at all levels in this communications process. It made me think about what would we do uh, outside of the context of a pandemic if we could have people from around the country even, um, and even the world, but to come to a place like Northwest Indiana and to say, hey, this is what's happening in the Rust Belt. Here's what some people are trying to do about it. Here's a sense of how people are living here. I think to be honest with you, Kim, I mean, yes, internationally it needs to happen, but I mean, here in the U.S., I mean, oh, yeah. we need people from, like, the north. I need somebody to send me to um, Arkansas or Alabama for four or five days and to show me around because I've never spent time in the south. I don't know how workers or anyone is living in Mississippi, Alabama, uh, so on and so forth, Louisiana, Arkansas. I've, I, I've never been there. Uh, I think something like that would be really, really interesting. I think it'd be fascinating. I mean, to have people come into Northwest Indiana mm -hmm. and say, this is what we're dealing with. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, because particularly, think about this. Most of the, the so-called progressive movement is located on the coast. Right. You know, and they have no idea of what's happening in the Midwest, nor the South for that matter. Right. Uh, it would be wonderful to get people to come down and say, "This spend a few days here. Let's go breathe the air of East Chicago." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and not only that, but to to, to the um, communication strategy, 
to set up a network where people in the South and people in, say, the Rust Belt would constantly be getting updates. So we could give a once a week, hey, man, here's what's happening with our, our folks down in uh, Mississippi. Here's the shit they're dealing with this week. Hey, here's what our folks down in Louisiana are dealing with this week. You know, mm-hmm. here's some big developments. Here's some struggles that are going on. Here's how we can help them out. Here's how we can connect. That's, you know. I think, I think it's a tremendous idea. I mean, the idea of, of networks across yeah. the country. Uh, that we could share this information, I think, would be real important. If we could get people to travel, it'd be even more so because, you know, we tend to think that we can build off email. Uh, I don't, I I think we have to get a more nuanced position. In other words, once we meet people, and I know what you look like, or I know what Serge looks like, you know, I've sat down, I've had a few beers with you guys, I've bullshitted with you, it's, i got to sense you. That's a difference when I get an email than I get an email from somebody I've never met. Yeah. You know, we have that personal connection. Once you have that personal connection, then email can work real good. But you need that personal connection. I don't think the left in this country understands that. Yeah. And this is stuff that the... the and not in a vacuum, by the way. This oh. is a culture-wide thing. This isn't just on the left. I mean, there, it's yeah. to some degree you could could say it's worse on the left, but it is a thing that's plaguing U.S. society. Yeah. We we don't travel. We don't see other parts of the country, um, and I think it would be I think it would be really good. I'd love to take you down south and be able to connect you to folks or point you that way, and, right? And stuff like that, or other parts of you know, take it Arizona and. You know, stuff like that. No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen enough desert in my lifetime. Hey, I so, was thinking of July, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so any last words? Because I want to shift to Africa, or South Africa, I'm sorry. And then I want to get into the to the um, the last section of the book. Are there any last words or any things you want, you want to say about the KMU before we shift gears here? Well, I, 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 the thing is... Um, the KMU, the KMU has profoundly affected me. I have tremendous respect for these people. That they've been able to build an organization that has survived for 40 years under the repression they've faced uh, is amazing. Um, I'm, in rational terms, I can't understand it. Uh, they have really... Talk about being under the gun. I mean... In 1988, when I traveled there, every trade union leader south of Luzon is the Luzon's a big northern island. Every trade union leader uh, south of Luzon was listed by name on a death squad's list to be killed. Everyone. Okay. There were over 200 identified death squads running around the country. This organization didn't panic. It held its guns. Well, that's the wrong word because I've never seen a KMU member with guns. Poor, poor uh, metaphor. But they they held their mud. They refused to be uh, intimidated, and they hung and they lost some people. They even lost the chair of the KMU. He was brutally assassinated in November of 1986. So everybody's exposed. It's you don't join the KMU lightly. Um, and there's all kinds of stories I can tell about this of people who've hung in there um, 
despite the repression, despite the pressure, despite the army, despite the integrated national police, et cetera, et cetera, how they break up picket lines and things like this, people, and, and, and they haven't been on strike. Uh, they've been on strike sometimes for two years. And I mean, for some people, I remember a couple, the first trip I made, I was in the, the city of Valenzuela, which is part of Metro Manila. And these are two of the poorest looking people I've seen, you know, you can you can really tell poor people because their their teeth are usually an indicator that and the, and these people were I mean they were dirty they had given up their homes and had been living on the picket line for two years and the thing I remember about them even more than that is they gave me the most sophisticated uh, uh, explanation of of Marx's concept of surplus value that I've ever had. Better than any I've had in the university. These two, these two folks just laid it on me. And yet, when you're on a picket line, you risk your life that somebody's not going to sh- come by and shoot it up. So this is not something you do as a lark. And, and the, the respect I have for these people um, is pretty unlimited. Not that they haven't made mistakes, not that I can't criticize them, but that they've survived in this is a is an inspiration. I mean, and think about this. Most people don't even know there's a labor movement in the Philippines, yet I would argue the KMU is one of the, if not the most developed and dynamic labor movement in the entire world. So there's a lot to be learned from them. I try to convey that in the book. No, I think you do a great job. Who else, is there anyone else that's studying the KMU? There's been one other book written by a woman named Lois West who studied it while as a doctoral student at UC Berkeley. She brought her book out. Mine came out in 96. Hers came out in 97. But as far as I know, she's never done any more work. Um, there's, there's, no, there's not really anybody else doing this, doing this work. Not even... I mean, there's a couple of Filipinos that are starting to sort of st- starting to do something there, but not really. Not gotcha. Yet. Now, I want to shift to South Africa, but before we end the conversation um, about the KMU, I'm, I'm interested, What what is your interest in South Africa? How did this come about? Just generally, how did you get interested in what, what was happening in South Africa? Well, remember I was... Like I say, I was at this conference in 1983 with the, with the launching of International Labor Reports, and they covered a lot of information about South Africa. Um, they covered more about South Africa and the, and the Philippines than any place else. So I started reading about this. There was a great book that came out, I think in 1984, called Power. Uh, and it came out by South End Press, so it's available here in the States. Much of the South African literature is not. It's either academic or it's just down there. It hasn't been republished in the, in the States in accessible form, as far as I know. Uh, but I started, I started hearing about this in um, 1985. I was on, a, on my second trip to Europe, and uh, uh, I was in Geneva when we heard about the launching of COSATU, so you had smaller organizations, and the key one was what was called THOSATU, which is Federation of South African Trade Unions. And they had built this really strong shop floor-based orga- uh, trade union organization. 
Now, why 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 I emphasize emphasize shop floor is they did not get involved in larger community struggles against apartheid. They wanted to build themselves up on the shop floor so that they could survive. They were challenged by other labor organizations to get involved in the community organizations, especially after 76 uh, in the the massacre in Soweto. And so there was a tension going on. Well, in in 1985, FOSATU joined with these other organizations and created COSATU, which is the Congress of South African Trade Unions. Um, And I was in Geneva, and uh, I can remember spending the day with a friend of mine I had met him in Sweden a couple of years previously, and he had gotten a job in Geneva, so he had had a brand-new convertible, and we drove around Geneva listening to Dire Straits that day, and we heard about the creation of COSATU, which was a big step forward, because it was melding both the trade union organizations and the community organizations. So this is so. So they're coming a little later to what the KMU had already figured out, that you had to build these ties between community and union organizations. So this is this is going on. And then in 1990 and 91, I went to, uh, I did my master's degree in the Netherlands at a place called the Institute of Social Studies. And this was basically a third world development institute. So about 90% of the students were for third world countries around the world. Uh, I, studied, I studied there because of the work I'd done on the Philippines. And then a couple of people came from South Africa. Actually, four people came from South Africa. Two had been in the union movement, Jeremy Daphne and Deanne Collins. And I got to be very close to both of them. And we spent hours and hours and hours talking about COSATU, uh, about the labor movement in South Africa. And I mean, these are two people that are intimately involved uh, in the labor movement. And uh, they just, they inspired me. I wanted to learn more. Um, you know, Deanna even gave me her book on, uh, on Kosatu. It was kind of a special gift. Um, but we, so, so this had gone on. So eventually, no, so, so I started reading on South Africa, reading, trying to understand the processes. And in about 2001, I wrote, this article that I think is chapter 11 yep. in the book. Okay. And this is trying to understand what's going on in South Africa from a certain perspective. Give us the racial and sort of economic context in which this is happening. So kind of lay the groundwork before we get into how this movement develops. Okay. Well, South Africa had been initially colonized uh, at least in the western part, around uh, Cape Town, by the Dutch in the 1600s. And then later the English came and decided they wanted to take Cape Town away from the Dutch. The Dutch ended up doing what they called the long trek across South Africa and moved to the eastern side of the, of the country. Uh, these are the people that became known as Afrikaners. They speak sort of a bastardized Dutch to this day. So they go over there. At the, in the late 18, 1898, actually, I think at the same time, the Spanish-American War, there's a war between the British and Dutch in South Africa called the Boer War, Boer meaning farmer. Eventually the English won and predominated. But the, but the, but the Afrikaners still existed 
but they didn't have power. Um, there was great segregation. Now, one of the differences, say, between the United States and South Africa is that blacks are about 82 85% of the population there, where there have only been 12% here. So it's a very different racial dynamic. But the, the British initially, or the English, uh, uh, imposed the segregation. And then in 1948, when the Dutch organized and created the National Party and got power, they established a really firm segregation they called apartheid or apartness. Uh, it's very, it's the same type of situation that we had in the southern United States here from roughly 1877 to, uh, to, 19, to the 1950s uh, when the Civil Rights Movement broke that apart. But very, very rigid system Blacks, even though a large majority of the country had no power, they were <coughs> excuse me, they were kept uh, powerless. They weren't educated. The government even at one point sets up homelands or Bantustans, where trying to force people to give up their South African uh, citizenship to go to these Bantustans. A great struggle about this. Starting in nineteen fifty-five, I think. You see, well, <clears throat> actually, starting in 1912, you had the emergence of the African National Congress, which was a black-led organization and had white members that that wanted to challenge this racial domination. Uh, and then, about 50 in 55, it got serious, and they started organizing on a much seri more serious basis. In 1962, there was a massacre in Sharpsville where 69 people were killed because they wouldn't. They were supposed to carry passes show if they were in the right area. And people refused to do that. And, um, and so 69 were killed at Sharpville in, in uh, 1962. This is when you have the, the development of what was called Mkwoto Nsuesi, which was Spear of the Nation. It was an underground force by the African National Congress. And Nelson Mandela was one of the leaders who decided to go underground and create and carry out armed activities against the state and against the apartheid system. Uh, Mandela was fingered by the CIA and arrested and ended up doing like 37 years in Robben Island um, and then got out and became president of the country. <laughs> Quite an incredible story. Um, you had a trade union movement in the 50s and 60s called SAC II, the South African Congress on Trade Unions. That was largely wiped out by the state and so it was only in the 70s you start, there was a big strike wave in 2000, or in 1973. It was stimulated by some longshoremen in Durban who went on strike, and then in early 73 you had like 100,000 workers go on strike. This is sort of the start of the modern-day um, trade union movement in South Africa. So it was, but it was always done in that context of this racial dictatorship is what it was, basically. Right. So, so that was there. How it was dealt with was very different. Like I say, Fosatu only focused on the factories for a long time. Right. You know, to, so they could build an organization that couldn't be crushed. One of the interesting things, and this is where Guy, Gay Seidman's work comes in, is that she saw the development of this rapid industrialization in the 60s and 70s, which created places for more black workers. And so that gave these black organizations, these workers, when they organized, more power because they really could screw things up if they didn't go along with the program type of thing. So they had a certain 
amount of power that develops there. South Africa, by the way, is, is much more industrialized than, uh, than the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so you have this very racial uh, s- social order. Uh, blacks were treated horrifically. Uh, they organized, they decided they weren't going to put up with it. They organized on all kinds of levels, some illegal, some armed activities, many not. The trade union eventually became crucial to the survival of the anti-apartheid movement. Um, the, the regime could not break the unions eventually. So that's why the development of Kosatu was so important. It couldn't be broke. And in 1990, it there had to be some decisions because it was either going to come, we're going to work something out or we're going to have a real civil war here. And neither side could break the other. So eventually they sat down. And in some ways that was good, saved a lot of misery and killing, but there were some compromises made that hurt South Africa, or the compromise made by black leadership that hurt South, has hurt South Africa over the, over the, over the uh, remaining period. Now, one of the problems they face is that after, so in 1990, the state, in 1990 into 1992 in this period, the state unbans a number of organizations that were illegal. So, so there were all kinds of different community organizations and stuff like this. One of the most important ones that was unbanned was the, was the Communist Party of South Africa. Um, and so the ANC was also unbanned. That's when and that's when Mandela got released from prison. Uh, ANC was unbanned. Uh, South African Communist Party (SACP) was unbanned. Kosatu uh, was never banned. So it was so they worked together in what they call a triple alliance. And basically, uh, what Kosatu has done, and I think this has been a mistake, is they've subjugated themselves below the ANC since the ANC got in power. And folks are trying to figure out how to deal with that. Right. The components of the South African struggle that seemed to stick out to me were the non-union elements, so student organizations, uh, community groups, uh, including blacks who were organizing around sort of cultural, social issues that were not attached to the uh, workplace, and then also uh, gender issues as well. Yeah, I don't know if the, if they're if you'd like to get into some of that. Well, I'd say a little bit. I mean, one of the important things, and this is where a guy named Steve Biko comes to, uh, is so important, is the development of what was called black consciousness. And this was an idea, and, and it happened here in the United States, a similar process, but he very consciously understood that blacks weren't inferior and he wanted to get them to understand that as well. So you have the development of what became known as black consciousness and this idea that blacks were not inferior to whites, which they'd been told all their lives they were. So that challenged that, and that really has an impact uh, not only in the organizations, um, but also especially among the youth, is the youth started getting sort of a shitty attitude. We're not going to take this shit anymore. So, like for example, in in Soweto in nineteen uh, Soweto in in nineteen seventy six, the regime was wanting students to be taught math in Afrikaans. Well, Afrikaans is not a is not a uh, general language. About the only people who speak it are Afrikaners and the Dutch. 
you know, they can understand each other. They want to be taught English. The regime didn't want to. The students rebelled. Eventually, the cops came on the high schools and killed 16 students or something like this, which re-stimulated that, also went into the trade unions, went into the whole liberation movement. But an idea that you've got going on that blacks were human beings, they deserved that respect. And they weren't going to take the subjugation anymore lying down. They were going to fight back. Very big, important process in there. Um, the thing about gender is you see, I, I write about uh, Sakawu, which is South African commercial and, creating, uh, commercial and catering workers union. And some of the things that they do, they understood that women suffered certain um, impacts. They, had, they were affected by things that obviously men weren't. And this is around gender relations and particularly families, having children, things like this, childbirth and stuff like this. And so this was one union that really came together and fought to have uh, not only, ch not only uh, um, time off for, for birth, but eventually time off with pay for not only the mother and then eventually the, you know, the father as well. So this particular union, and this, my friend Jeremy Daphne was a key player in this, um, played a great role in suggest, you know, in opening up and getting the unions to fight for gender rights. I don't know how much that spread, but that one union, it's, it's very clear. So I write about that. Yeah. No, I thought it was important because it's, uh, these are issues that come up today and they'll come up probably forever. <laughs> so now we are in uh, part three. I want to go into the last chapter, which sort of brings everything into focus and centers the discussion on the U.S. labor movement, how it can learn from movements in, say, Brazil, South Africa, the Philippines, and elsewhere. Um, can you talk to us about the confusion that exists in scholarship on this topic some people, for instance, are using the same terms to mean two different things. Can you explain why this is? And then we can go into your empirical discussion, your sort of critique of Kim Moody's work, or even if you want to tie that in here, that's fine. Okay. Um, one of the things that happened in the late 80s, which I referred to earlier, there was an international debate between Peter Waterman in the Netherlands and Rob Lambert and Eddie Webster in South Africa, and then I joined it. And this was to try to define social movement unionism. Uh, now, Gay Seidman, who was a grad student at the time, was, was in South Africa, and she picked up the term social movement unionism from Eddie Webster and brought it to the U and, and included it in her book, uh, Manufacturing Militants. Kim Moody, who's an activist here, or was an activist here, he's now living in England, I believe, uh, took it on and tried to use that term to refer to uh, new developments in the labor movement in the U.S. The problem was is that Seidman didn't understand the concept to the degree necessary, and Moody screwed it up even further. And so this kind of, this terminology was devoted to a particular type of trade unionism. Now, this unionism has only 
developed in the global south, although there's no reason they couldn't in the north, but it's only been located there. But what we have to understand is that even in the global south, in these countries, you have, um, you have different sets of labor movements. So you have multiple labor movements in a lot of these countries. So, uh, for example, in South Africa, you've got oh, at least two, maybe more. No, there's more than that. Excuse me. Uh, you've got more than that. You've got four or five, depending on the time in the Philippines. You've got multiple ones in Brazil, things like this. So why I say this is the focus is not on the country. The focus is on the organization. Okay. So, so uh, Moody got this concept, misapplied it to the U.S., and it, got, it became very popular here. People took it on, thought, wow, this is a cool way, and we're using it. But they weren't using it in the ways that that Waterman, uh, Lambert, and Webster, and then myself developed it. So there's been a lot of confusion. And most people do not know even about the initial debate between the four of us. And so they're taking Moody at face value and building on that. And it just made a big mess of intellectual discussion because, you, you know, you're using social movement union, unionism to describe two qualitatively different phenomena, social phenomena. And it was very confusing. So in 2014, I published an article, which is now chapter 13 in the book, trying to disentangle this intellectual confusion a confusion among labor scholars. And so what I what I came to understand, and actually I'd been working on this through a different path, when I developed my, when I did my PhD dissertation, which I finished in 2003, which was a comparison of the steel workers and the meat packers in the Chicago area, northwest Indiana, from 1955 to, or 1933 to 55, what I did was what I was trying to see is if we could develop a new form of trade unionism. In other words, they were both examples of the economic type of unionism. Then I wanted to drop down and use form as a subtype, if you will. And what I, what I was able to show was that there were two different subtypes in the United States. One was what I call business unionism, which we've long had, and then what I call social justice unionism. Okay, so the social justice, to make a long story short, the social justice unionism is the term that should be applied to progressive labor struggles in the United States, not social movement unionism. So I said right. my argument basically was that social movement unionism should be confined to trade unions that met certain criteria. I was going to ask you if you could mention those three. Yeah, and and then the other was the other was the uh, um, was the progressive movements in the United States. I, I argue should be should be properly classified as social justice the social justice unions which are subsets of the economic trade unionism. Okay. So that in, that in that article and now chapter, I'm trying to develop this, try to show how this, is, how this is, has developed over time, separate them out and things like that, because I think we need theoretical clarity so we can understand what we're talking about. Right, right. 
So social movement unionism should meet three criterion. Can you talk about what your three criterion are for social movement unionism? <laughs> well, one, it's, it's, it transcends this political economic uh, split that we've had in previous types of unionism. It also, it's, it's based on the membership, so bottom-up type of thing. And then finally, it recognizes that we have to change not only conditions in the country, but in the global political, economic, cultural networks that are established. So in other words, it's got to counteract what we call imperialism. And it's got to take that on. And needless to say, those are not things that are happening in the U.S. You argue, because we went through, I think you made the point very clear that even with existing theoretical flaws that we should still use the concept, um, that it's worth sort of working this out and continuing to work it out. In other words, you also make the argument, um, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, and it's something that you would say, I think, with most things, and that is that this will continue to be developed. Oh, absolutely. That this isn't something that's just set in stone, that this concept will change over time. Yeah. And that people should add to it, that you actually want people to think about this, write about it, research it, and, you know, actually put it into practice. Yeah, I don't want, I, I, I mean, and this isn't all of my work, I don't want my work being treated as gospel. It's my best thinking based on my experiences. Now, I have some pretty unique experiences. I have some that, you know, very few people, if any, have, but that doesn't mean they're more important than anybody else's. But it, it does mean that look at your experiences, try to understand, show this where I'm limited. Go beyond me, please. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, we do. We, we need, uh, the more I, I read through the book, the more I was thinking about how a lot of our theories here uh, about social change, political change, are just very limited. They're either sort of regurgitating old <sighs> Marxist notions, Leninist, etc., mm -hmm. um, or they're just very limited in scope in terms of what they're trying to change. That gets back to like trying to change the whole social order, which is a lot different than just saying these workers deserve better benefits or more dignity or whatever it may be. Um, so three important points must be recognized. We went through qualitative difference between practices at each center, social movement unionism different than social justice unionism. Um, you argue that there can be a qualitative differences in union behavior within union types. Um, and to delineate behaviors within types, the concept trade union form has been advanced. Forms are different sets of practices within a particular type of trade unionism. Yeah. I just want us to be very clear so people understand exactly what we're saying. Right. The, of the, I use the term form to delineate a subtype of, in this case, the economic uh, type. Just to remind people, though, the types are economic, political, social movement. Right. Okay, right. and then you're saying in the United States, the two subforms that we have seen have taken place under the economic yes. type. Yes. And one of them is business unionism. The other one is social justice unionism. You got it. And so to show this difference, you look into, well, your dissertation, of course, looks into this period from 1933 to 1955 and two different unions who approach that period in a way, uh, sort of different fashion. Oh, yeah. So kind of take it from there because it's, a, of course, an interesting topic for me because it's where most of my family is from. <laughs> well, you, you had, see, one of the things 
there, 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 well, let's put it this way. There really hasn't been a complete study of the Steelworkers Union in this country. Um, there's a lot of mythology about the steelworkers. And when I was doing my dissertation, I went into the, into the archives of the Chicago Historical Society, and I found the, found the um, files of a guy named George Patterson, who I'd never heard of. George Patterson had been one of the leading trade unionists in this area. And before, now everybody thinks that everything progressive started with the CIO. There actually was a, a trade union organization, a union formed at Southworks, which is, um, if, you're, if you're going to Chicago from northwest Indiana, you go over the Calumet Bridge at the north end of the Calumet River. There used to be the largest steel mill in the world. It's called Southworks. And at that mill... In 1934, George Patterson organized a trade union there before the CIO. And it was democratically run. It was from the bottom up. They had over 3,000 members. Um, and Patterson becomes this leading organizer, not only in, in the Chicago, northwest Indiana area, but he's one of the two leading steelworker organizers in the country. He's identified by other people as such. Um, he's playing an incredibly important role. Eventually, the company, US, it was a subsidiary of U.S. Steel, fired Patterson. Now, between that time, you had the emergence of the CIO uh, and particularly the Steelworkers Organizing Committee, which was headed by Philip Murray. And in this area, it was a guy named... Um, Oh, God, come on, Kim. Um, I'm going to have to think about it. I can't think of it. His name doesn't jump out. It, um, it should. Um, anyway, this guy whose name I, I'm not, I, I can't think of is um, head of the region. And when Patterson gets fired, this guy does not back him up. They don't call a strike or anything like that. Patterson gets fired. Bittner, his name's Van Bittner. That's who I'm thinking of. Excuse me. Anyway, Bittner does not back Patterson up. Bittner, uh, Patterson gets fired, and then Bittner puts him on as, as part of SWAC under his control. And Bittner's form of trade unionism was a top-down version that was, had been developed in the Mine Workers Union. Where Patterson's was a bottom-up, democratically run, Bittner's was a top-down, you have to do everything from the top, you have to obey, things like this. Uh, one of the things Bittner, for example, did not believe that there was a difference in, in race, uh, and that there was no consideration. Everybody was equal. You know, it was a class-based analysis with nothing about race. And what ended up happening is when the steelworkers were organized, they used a type of, of uh, seniority in the plants that recognized the department seniority. So when you got hired into that particular uh, department, your seniority started running. The other version would have been when you got hired into the plant, see, because what the departmental seniority did was it locked you into that department. And so blacks and Latinos and uh, so a number of people had been locked into the hottest, most dirtiest, different uh, uh, departments like, like uh um, open hearth, like the Coke plant, places like this. These are places that are terrible to work in, 
terrible health conditions, everything like that. So basically, when the steel workers of America, United Steelworkers of America, signed their contract in 1937, they set up this departmental steel, uh, this department seniority, which kept, which kept the racial discrimination that the company had already instituted in place. That didn't get challenged until 1984. So that was one version. The other version that I, and, and that was a form of what I call business unionism. Later, then I looked at the packing house workers. The past, packing house workers were, were totally different. Uh, the main organizing project was, was led there by a, an out-front communist named Herbert March. And they built their union from the beginning as a, as a union of blacks and whites. And they understood you had to challenge racism, and they took it on for, uh, forthwith. And so, by, for example... By 1939, in, in racist, segregated Chicago, out of 14 local packing house unions, eight were headed by African Americans in 1939. And that union continued to develop, and by 1962, every single uh, packing house contract in the country had an anti-racial discrimination clause on it, not only for, work, for employment, but for job applicants as well. And that was by what year? 1962. Wow. And, in fact, even more impressive is that they desegregated the armor plant in Birmingham in 1954 before Rosa Parks made her move in Montgomery. This union is a phenomenal one. It's, it, it never has gotten the attention that it deserves, but I think it was, was certainly one of these, if not the most progressive unions within the CIO. Any good books on the union that people should read yes there's a book called by rick halpern called down on the killing floors and then one by roger horowitz and i'm forgetting the name his the name of his they both came out in 1997 published by the university of illinois press excellent but then i'm i'm trying to get my dissertation finally published i've been doing all this international stuff i should come back to the u.s and then and then what I have will update that, but it's not so. So my stuff on packing is good, but it's it's based on others' work. The steelworker stuff, I'm cutting brand new territory, and it's it's gonna uh, it's gonna be challenging to a lot of people. Right on. And just to be clear for folks, so and just to wrap this up because I want to get us to what the implications are today for the labor movement, and especially here in the United States, because this is where I think a lot of people will be listening, and, and I think this is obviously where we're going to be applying a lot of these uh, ideas and theories and so forth. So um, just to be very clear for folks, what do you think are the main the main takeaways is that for the, for the uh, packing house union, you're talking black and white workers working from the bottom up democratically, knowing that race is an issue, consciously head-on facing it and dealing with it, um, as opposed to a top-down version. Uh, and yet, even with the, with the packing union, um, it doesn't meet the criteria of, say, a social movement unionism. Right. Um, and that's, you're holding up as, like, the KMU, that's the golden standard. And so even at some of our best union history, we still don't kind of match up with what, again, has been developed in the Philippines. Right. And that's not a knock. That's not to, you know, we're not trying to, it's just to say that this is, 
just to be clear for folks, you know, that yes, this is better than business unionism, yes, but still not quite social movement unionism. Yeah, and and part of the thing also is is what I'm arguing in this larger in this book and this larger thing is there's a lot we in the United States can learn from workers in developing countries. We have to get this idea that we're better than everybody else. And of course we know about more about trade unionism than anybody else. We need to get that shit out of our head because that's all it is. It's nonsense. And there's a lot to be learned. Um, I think the idea that we've got to create unions that are based on respect for the members that work from the bottom up that are democratic that address oppressions, whether like whether it be race, gender, homophobia, et cetera, et cetera. These things are need need to be taken on because these are all things that will will tear your organization apart when there's pressure placed on them. They've got to be confronted. I think the the larger issue that that workplace activists have to do, and here I'm a, I'm probably a minority of one. But I think we've got to look at it is we've got to look at the history of our unions here in the United States. And I think we've got to ask the questions is uh, in international labor terminology, the AFL-CIO is a labor center, just like the KMU, just like COSATU, et cetera. Um, But can we form the kind of unions we need under the K, under the AFL CIO, or do we need to start thinking about creating a new labor center from the bottom up? I think that's going to be the, going to be a big issue, because I see so many limitations of the AFL CIO type of thing. Would it be a similar debate or discussion uh, as one would have surrounding, say, the Democratic Party? In other words, you have this existing structure that. It, I would assume a similar argument would be made that, well, why wouldn't you just work with what you have in order to start from scratch? It's going to be very difficult. It's going to be hard to, you know, gain the support you need, the resources, and actually big enough to have an impact before either somebody squashes you or you just don't amount to much. And I mean, not that I don't want to draw too many parallels, but it seems like an ongoing discussion. Well, let's broaden it out even further than electoral politics. It's like anything. I mean, anything that somebody wants to do right now, they're asking themselves the question, do I want to join in it? So the only avenue, say, for you to get involved, it's like, am I going to join a union or start one? Am I going to join an existing NGO or, like, I guess, I don't know if people want to do that and start their own, but you know what I mean? Am I going to join an existing community organization or am I going to start my own? It's an ongoing conversation. Yeah. With everything. You know, do you want to improve existing institutions how much, how much capacity do you want to spend on that compared to, say, building your own new institutions? Those are, you know. Those are big questions. Now, I mean, and this is this is something we should do maybe a show in the in the future. Yeah. Because it's a lot of stuff you, you've just thrown out there. I would say the question has to be asked. Yeah, answer them all right now. <laughs> right, 30 <laughs> seconds or less, right? Um I think the I think the question's got to be asked is can the unions under the AF created and existing under the AFL-CIO can they meet our needs? If they can, then I would say stay with the organization we can fight for reforms and changes in that. On the other hand, if they can't, we, why put why keep putting why why keep feeding a dead horse? 
Right. In other words, why don't, you know, yes, it's going to be difficult. Maybe we can't do it, but maybe we need to start looking at things that have a chance rather than just going in and saying this is hopeless and we're just going to do that. Let me ask you this. We, so we've seen some things in the, in the recent um, past. We've seen the fight for 15 effort somewhat succeed. I think overall politically it's succeeded. I think most people now, even in, in the uh, uh, last election in Florida, people voted on the referendum to do $15 an hour minimum wage in the state. So that won um, easily. Too, you know, so I think we've won that politically. Of course, now when we first were fighting for this, it was 2013. Um, you know, people need a lot more than $15 an hour in 2020. We kind of knew that was going to be a problem at the time. But I, I'm interested in what you think are. Do you think that there's specific sectors of work or of the economy that people should be thinking about? I mean, you hear people talking about wanting to organize gig workers. I don't know how in the fuck you do that because of the way that they're sort of broken up as like, you know, if you're an Uber driver, how the hell do you even connect with other Uber drivers? If you even know them or unless you're friends with them, um, there's people who want to organize, uh, Amazon workers. They think that's, you know, Amazon's huge right now. That's the spot. I question whether or not the automation process is going to sort of happen quicker than it would take us to, to actually organize there. Um, and I guess this gets back to the question of whether or not you want to put all your eggs in the basket of workplace organizing. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of the, I guess this is what I'm getting to by kind of running through those scenarios in my head. It's not that we shouldn't, you know, just to be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do either or, or that it's a dichotomous thing, but that we probably need all of the above but with limited time and resources, it's tough. I mean, we even see what happened over the last... Uh, so what do we have? Let me just say this, you know, in the political context. Bernie's campaign, the problem was we couldn't get enough people of color, both black and Latino, but Latinos showed up really in a big way for Bernie. But even then, you know, we could not get especially enough black voters to vote for Bernie. Right. You and I have talked about this going all the way back to Chewy and Rahm Emanuel and the fact that most of the black wards, I think almost every black ward with a black plurality went for Emanuel and vice, you know, the opposite for Latino wards um, for Chewy. Going all the way back to conversations we would have at Galveston where I would come back from a lot of left-wing events and be like, man, I don't see too many black people at these events. Um then Black Lives Matter happened in 2014, 2015. Um, and then again now in uh, over Memorial Day weekend when George Floyd was killed, we saw this gigantic uprise. I mean, the biggest, it, it's wild because the year's been so crazy. And I don't know if we're all desensitized, but we did just have the biggest uprisings and mass protests that the country maybe has ever seen. Now, I don't want to get into all the critiques of, of the what that ended up being or the movement or any of that kind of stuff. For me, it's more a question of like, that's, those are the very people, the people that we've seen over the last six months who are in the streets, multiracial, young, old, black, white, Latino, Asian. I mean, you saw the videos and the pictures from all over yep. the country. That, uh, that is the crowd that we need. And yet that crowd didn't show up for Bernie's campaign, which was an economically driven um, uh, 
put, you know, put policy first, put the economy first, put your material well-being first, uh, it didn't resonate enough for people to, to come out and to do much for that or just to come out and vote. You know, so people always make the argument, oh, you can't get people to come out and vote unless you have a structure to get them to come out and vote. Well, these people came out and some of them were in the streets for fucking two weeks and there was no structure maintaining that. Right. Um, but they were still out there and they were excited about something. Now, you can make the cynical argument that it was just because it was the popular thing to do or this or that, but I think there was a genuine rage. Um, I don't think it was primarily or just about, let's say, maybe it was primarily for some people, I don't think it was just about race. You know, there's a multitude of things that were happening at that time. But it's it's just interesting to me, all of this combined with your book, the last nine months, the election, the aftermath of what's, you know, what this has meant. It's made me think about a lot of stuff, man. I'm looking forward to, as a matter of fact, if I'm not too tired tonight, I might even start on that review of the book because I want to put one out. Oh, cool. uh, I promised you I'd do one. And I think after as much as I've been into this and then having this conversation with you, there might not be a better time than tonight and tomorrow to uh, actually write the review and just knock it out. Cool. Um, but I think it's really useful, man. I think it's theoretically useful for people. It obviously contributes to labor scholarship, but it, far more than that, you know, it, it contributes to how we should be thinking about what we're doing as activists and organizers. And for that, you know, thanks for writing a really awesome book. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you think so. But I think there's a lot there. I think we need to look at this stuff. Yeah. Um, but I just want to say one thing in, in, in light, light of your comments about here is one of the things that we tend to ignore when we look at social movements is we fail to understand the organization. Because if a social movement doesn't have an organization within it, it'll fall apart. You can't sustain them for a long period of time. We just saw it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. This is why the experiences of, say, like the KMU, Kosatu, whatever, these are important experiences. We need to understand this stuff. So thank yeah. you. No, no, thank you, and thanks for coming on, brother. All right, you've been listening to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon.